0: When and where did Jesus offer himself to God? What role does Jesus' death play in his high priestly self-offering in heaven? Answering these questions are crucial for understanding the book of Hebrews rightly. Tune as Bobby Jameson answers those questions. We'll talk with him about his recent book, Jesus' Death and Heavenly Offering in Hebrews. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Bobby Jameson is an associate pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He earned an MDiv and THM from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a Ph.D. in New Testament from the University of Cambridge, where he also taught Greek. In addition to his published doctoral work, he's the author of a variety of books, including Understanding Baptism and Understanding the Lord's Supper. Bobby, welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Bobby, what first sparked your interest in the book of Hebrews?
1: Yeah, well, I was thinking about graduate study in theology, and I was drawn to do something in New Testament because I've always loved exegesis and uh, fell in love with Greek when I started it as an undergrad. And um, when I was kind of casting around to think about what to focus on, I've, I've always been fascinated by the book of Hebrews. It's so dense. It's so theologically rich, uh, and especially it incorporates so much of the Old Testament. And so, obviously, to write any kind of a, you know, a PhD thesis, you have to specialize very narrowly. But because Hebrews is so saturated in the Old Testament, uh, you know, I was looking for a way, in a sense, to specialize without having to fully specialize, you know, specialize in something that would lead in a, in a few different directions.
0: Your book, a revision of your doctoral dissertation at Cambridge, is called Jesus' Death and Heavenly Offering in Hebrews. With this work, you enter the ongoing debate in Hebrew scholarship about where and when Jesus offers himself and what role his death plays in that offering. Would you orient us to that discussion, the issues involved here?
1: Yeah, sure. And I think I'll do this in two parts. I'll just briefly talk about the the topics in Hebrews itself, and then a quick introduction to the scholarly conversation. Uh, In Hebrews itself, There are basically three factors to consider. Uh, One is that throughout Hebrews, especially in chapters 5 to 10, there's a detailed elaboration of Christ's saving work as the high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice. That's kind of the central theme of the book. It's, it's the most unique theological contribution. Uh, and that's modeled in detail on Levitical sacrifices, especially the Day of Atonement. Uh, so there's just that kind of general observation. This is a central theme in Hebrews, his his priestly self-offering. Uh, but a second topic in Hebrews is that. Uh, Hebrews especially has a lot to say about Jesus' ascension, his entrance to heaven, and his enthronement. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's really a key verse uh, in Hebrews as it is in in much of the New Testament. Uh, And so Hebrews is especially focused on Christ's enthronement and, as it were, what happens just before that. Uh, So however you interpret the details, there's a clear emphasis in Hebrews both on Jesus' entrance to heaven uh, and his ongoing presence there. Uh, And then a a third factor here is just the question then, whatever Jesus is doing in heaven and however Hebrews specifically interprets that, how does his work in heaven relate to what he accomplishes on earth and specifically his death on the cross? So I think, you know, the overall concept of Jesus offering himself as both priest and sacrifice, Uh, Hebrews focus on Christ's entrance to heaven and ongoing presence there, and then how does that relate? to Jesus' death. Those are all kind of three factors of Hebrews that any any interpreter of the letter has to wrestle with. Uh, But in terms of recent scholarly conversation and how this fits into, you know, uh, a PhD thesis, uh, a major impetus here is David Moffat's very powerful and provocative uh, thesis that was published in 2011. Uh, And what Moffat does is he argues for the crucial importance in Hebrews of Jesus' bodily resurrection. That's something that there's some scholarly debate about. Uh, and in order to do that, he does it in part by arguing that Hebrews locates Jesus' self-offering in heaven after his resurrection. So this is a, a bodily incarnate act. It's, it's after the resurrection. He's there in person in heaven. Uh, and Moffat's thesis stirred up a ton of discussion uh, immediately. And my initial take on the work was that I largely agreed with his case uh, for Jesus' heavenly offering, but I thought there were some weaknesses in his treatment of Jesus' death, and then this key issue of the relationship between the two. How does what he accomplishes on earth fit with what he does in heaven? Is there some kind of uh, rationale within Hebrews for how those things belong together? Uh, Those seem to call out for more attention. And then the more I got into the issue, especially when I was kind of preparing for doctoral work and at the beginning of the thesis, uh, the more I discovered that these are long-running tensions and debates in scholarship on Hebrews. When and where does Jesus offer himself? How does that relate to preceding events, death, resurrection? Uh, In some ways, these have roots in patristic debates, uh, early modern debates, and then even in the last hundred or so years, there's a lot of different takes on it. So Moffat sent me into this. uh, But then the more I got into the scholarship, I realized, yeah, there's lots of long-running kind of fault lines in scholarship on these issues.
0: The book Introduction summarizes your argument beautifully. It says, What Jesus offers God in heaven is the life he gave in death. The first part of your book then answers the questions, when and where did Jesus offer himself? Tell us about your answers to these questions.
1: Sure. Yeah, those questions structure the first part of the book, which is really the first half. And uh, just a, a kind of clarification before jumping into some of the arguments. Um, I think in especially in, say, Western Christianity, uh, we tend to equate the idea of sacrifice with slaughter, uh, with, with the sacrificial killing, uh, and that's in part because of thinking about Jesus' death uh, as a sacrifice, and there's certainly some legitimacy to that. But kind of right off the bat, I at least want to uh, insert a distinction here. Uh, the way that terminology of offering is often used, say, in the Hebrew and Greek texts of Leviticus— Uh, The distinctive terminology for offering often focuses on uh, actually the act of bringing near, the act of presenting. Uh, So there's slaughter and then gathering up of blood and then bringing that in and uh, sprinkling or applying in different ways to, uh, you know, the altar, um, the tabernacle. Uh, so that we there 's just a little bit of a of an assumption when we talk about sacrifice in English that that sort of equals slaughter uh, but if you but again, if you look at Old Testament sacrificial texts, uh, specifically cultic terminology office, often focuses more on bringing near handing over uh, and so I think Hebrews actually uses just to give the kind of headline answer Hebrews uses the language of self offering to describe what de- what Jesus does uh, in heaven at his entrance to heaven after his resurrection. And there's really three parts uh, to the argument in this first half of the book. Uh, The first, in in support of this idea that he offers himself in heaven after the resurrection, Uh, the first sort of pillar supporting that is that um, Hebrews portrays Jesus as being appointed high priest subsequent to his resurrection. I think there are a number of texts that when you read them all together, you see this uh I'll just I'll just try to dip into a couple. It's always, you know, the pitfall of somebody who's written a PhD, how do they explain it without telling you the whole thing? But I'll try to be concise. <laughs> um just a couple of texts to dip into. Uh you know, one would be chapter 5 Hebrews chapter 5 uh verses 8 to 10. This is from the ESV. Uh, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's lots of debates here, lots of interpretive issues to decide. But I think think, um, the overall impact of this passage is that it portrays Jesus as faithfully enduring all of his sufferings, Uh, being perfected after those sufferings, at the completion of those sufferings, on the far side of those sufferings, uh, and thereby becoming the source of eternal salvation. And it's at that time, at this stage of perfection, at this stage of completion, that he's designated a high priest, that is appointed a high priest. Uh, That's Hebrews referring back to Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I think Hebrews treats this as a kind of oath of installation, uh, you know, spoken by God the Father to Jesus, installing him in office as high priest, and one bit of confirmation, and I think I think David Moffat treats this in a very helpful way. this is where I'm sort of largely uh kind of following his case and adding my own kind of nuances in hebrews seven sixteen The author asserts that the basis of Jesus being a high priest is not Levitical descent. He he doesn't qualify for for the priesthood in Aaron's order because he doesn't have the right genealogy. Well, then what is the basis of his priesthood? Hebrews 7.16, Jesus has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And the interesting thing about the context— of Hebrews chapter seven is that there's this running contrast between the Levitical priest's mortality and Jesus's immortality, uh, but Hebrews is very clear that Jesus uh, lived and suffered and died, uh, and in that sense was mortal, and only attained to immortality uh, in and by his resurrection. So, I think Hebrews here explicitly makes Jesus' resurrection a qualification, a prerequisite for his entering into the office of high priest. And in a couple of places, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 3, Hebrews says that every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Uh, This is in keeping with, uh, you know, text in Leviticus and elsewhere in the Old Testament where offering sacrifice is a priestly prerogative. Not not just anybody can offer a sacrifice. You have to be installed in office first. And so Hebrews actually narrates this sequence of Jesus becoming qualified for this office, obtaining all the prerequisites of this office, being installed in office. And really as a matter of logical necessity, uh, I think a logic not imposed from the outside, but Hebrews working with uh, sort of old covenant cultic categories as a model, um uh, As a matter of necessity, he only offers a sacrifice once he 's installed in office as high priest so that 's a little bit of a sketch of uh, when Jesus is appointed high priest and and uh, therefore of necessity uh, he only offers his his sacrifice after that uh, there 's another kind of kind of pillar supporting this conclusion. A second point, which is Hebrews uses the Day of Atonement as a model to underscore that Jesus presents his offering in the Holy of Holies. Uh, so, the, so the Day of Atonement, which we have in Leviticus 16, and it's alluded to, I think, in Exodus 30, verse 10. Uh, this is a unique uh, day. It's the only time when anyone is allowed into the Holy of Holies, and that's only the high priest, just on this one occasion. Uh, that's, Hebrews, Hebrews itself says that in chapter 9, verse 7. Uh, And what's interesting about the way Hebrews portrays the Day of Atonement, what the author is most focused on and most concerned with is the high priest's entry into the Holy of Holies, into the inner sanctum, with blood. And then in in chapter 9, verse 7, the author says, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Uh, That word for offering, it's describing acts of sprinkling. Uh, really, according to Leviticus 16. But Hebrews uses the word offering uh, to underscore that this is the sort of culmination of the offering. This is where the decisive event takes place. And so the sequence is the high priest obtains blood, he brings it with him, he goes into the holy of holies, and that's where he makes his offering. Uh, now, some scholars have observed observed that Uh, But then just said, you know what, this is one of the differences between Jesus' offering uh, and the the Levitical Day of Atonement. uh, That whereas those high priests went into the Holy of Holies to make their offering, Jesus uh, already made his offering on the cross and then went into the Holy of Holies. They would just see the author of Hebrews as deliberately altering uh, that sequence. It's part of the way that, you know, according to the author of Hebrews, uh, the fulfillment of this Old Covenant anticipation uh, differs from the from the model from the pattern, but I don't actually think uh, that's the way Hebrews treats this. Uh, wh- a couple of a couple of points supporting that. Uh, in other words, that Hebrews Hebrews sees Jesus as following the same model of going into the holy of holies in order to make an offering. Uh, in chapter nine, verses twenty four and twenty five. Well, back to verse twenty three. The the author says that it was necessary for the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. Uh, drawing on Exodus 25 verse 40 uh, and some other places, uh, the author conceives of heaven as a tabernacle uh, and that this tabernacle is the original heavenly reality on which the earthly uh, cult was patterned. Uh, and so this heavenly tabernacle had to be purified uh, with a better sacrifice than what uh, purified the old covenant tabernacle and its, uh, all of its kind of furniture. And then the author gives us two uh senses in which Christ's sacrifice is superior to these sacrifices. One of them in verses 24 and 25 is where it's offered. Uh Christ hasn't entered into a an earthly holy place uh, but heaven itself now to appear in the presence of a God on our behalf. So the author is interpreting, uh, the author is expounding what it means for Jesus to offer a better sacrifice. And the logic of the whole argument is, well, one thing that makes it a better sacrifice is where it's offered. Uh, it's offered in heaven, not on earth. It's offered in the heavenly holy of holies, not the earthly one. And even the grammar, you know, not not every <laughs> uh, listener of this podcast may be as much of a Greek geek uh, as I fancy myself, but even the Greek grammar here—the um, the subordinate clause in verse 25 is dependent on the verb in verse 24, which is entered. Uh, the sequences enter in order to offer. That's common to both Christ and the and the priests of the old covenants. Or you could look at a passage like uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, which is the first real detailed. Uh, Discussion of Christ's sacrifice. And just to summarize the thrust of the passage, uh, the author draws a clear contrast between the earthly realm in which the Levitical priests minister, that is governed by the law, that is a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And in contrast, Christ is uh, a minister in heaven. The tent where he serves is the true tent that the Lord set up, according to chapter 8, verse 2. Uh, and even in this context, here we have chapter 8, verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. And so the context clearly includes Jesus' offering of sacrifice. Then in verse, uh, verse 4, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Jesus isn't qualified uh, as, a, as a priest in Le- the Levitical order. He, he has no sort of authority and jurisdiction uh, in the earthly tabernacle, so to speak. Uh, so there seems to be a clean break between those who serve on earth and this one who serves in heaven. And there's some other, you know, supporting passages as well, but I think those would be a couple of the clearest. So Jesus is appointed high priest subsequent to his resurrection. Uh, fulfilling the model of the day of atonement, he offers a sacrifice once he goes into the Holy of Holies. Um, and then then really the third point is is kind of a conclusion from this. Okay, so if that's where he offered the sacrifice, when did he offer the sacrifice? Uh, and the when follows necessarily. It's upon his ascension. This isn't denying that Jesus' death is sacrificial, uh, but rather that Hebrews ties the language of Jesus' self-offering exclusively to his entrance to the heavenly sanctuary. So I think uh, I think David Moffat is right to to say that in Hebrews, there's something of a proto-credal sequence. Uh, Hebrews narrates Christ's incarnation very explicitly, uh, gives us elements of his his life on earth, his suffering, his death, uh, and then narrates his resurrection, his ascension, his entrance into heaven, his session at the right hand of the Father, and says he will come again a second time. So I think Hebrews uh, gives us all of those main plots on the line of the son's saving mission, but just zooms in and focuses on and kind of pauses at Uh, Christ going into heaven, entering uh, the holy of holies in heaven, and what he does just before he takes his seat at God's right hand.
0: In the second part of the book, you address the role of Jesus' death. How does Jesus' death play into Hebrews' soteriology? How does his death play into his heavenly self-offering? Give us a summary of your conclusions.
1: (sighs) Yeah, that's a great question. You know, that that's the natural question, and it's kind of uh, been a, an important one for me in getting into this topic. Um, and I think I, as I do in the book, I'd want to break it up into two parts uh, to try to address that. One is simply uh, canvassing what Hebrews says about Jesus' death explicitly. If we restrict ourselves to passages where his death is explicitly mentioned, uh, you know, we're not trying to kind of assume that there's a reference here. Uh, if you know, kind of restricting ourselves to to explicit discussions of his death, um, then there are three passages that really stand out. I won't I won't discuss them in detail, but just briefly, uh, that would be chapter two verse nine, in the context of a discussion of Christ's incarnation. Uh, Hebrews says in chapter two, verse nine, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So here we have the suffering of death. We have its sequel in Christ's exaltation. And then that last phrase is especially crucial. He tastes death for everyone. Uh, I think Hebrews, uh, working with Psalm 8 uh, in in this context, which itself is working with uh, the Genesis account of, of creation in God's image and the dominion that God grants uh, to Adam and Eve, I think Hebrews is portraying Jesus' death as the solution to the problem of death uh, that is a feature of humanity's fall, humanity, humanity being plunged into, into ruin. Uh, so that Jesus' death here is presented as, uh, a necessary ingredient and a decisive, uh, a decisive step in humanity being delivered from death. Jesus tasting death for everyone. Uh, I do think uh, this is this is very similar to other, you know, just simple New Testament assertions of Christ's death as a substitute. Uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen three died for our sins according to the scriptures. I think this is very similar. It's, it's it has a lot of the same material content. Uh, you know, Hebrews 2, 14, and 15, uh, I won't read read the whole passage or go into detail, but in, in Hebrews 2, 14, and 15, G- it's Jesus' death that actually destroys the one who has the power of death. You know, Hebrews says that is the devil, uh, and it delivers those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So here, Jesus' death is is an effectual resting of persons from Satan's dominion, Satan's influence. It's a, it, it transforms the reality of death so that it's no longer something uh, fearful. It's, it's actually a victory. Uh, and it's not, not simply as a kind of precursor. You know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't say something like, uh, by trampling over death in his resurrection, he defeated death. It says, through death, he destroyed the devil. So again, Jesus' death is is decisive. It's it's soteriologically effective. It is itself uh, a decisive act of salvation. And then in some ways, even uh, in a passage that takes us even closer to some of the themes we were just looking at, uh, in chapter 9, verses 15 to 17, Jesus' death is seen as uh, that which enables him to mediate the new covenant. Uh, It secures... The promised eternal inheritance for those who are called. And it does this by, the author says, uh, this is a death that has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Uh, there's, a, there's much debate uh, about verses 16 and 17 Is Hebrews talking about a will or a testament. There's one Greek word that could be translated either way. My view is kind of a minority position on that. I, I think Hebrews is talking about a covenant consistently in those verses. But even if you just stick to verse 15, uh, Jesus' death is that which sets the new covenant in effect. Uh, it guarantees, it secures this eternal inheritance, which I think in Hebrews, uh, as in the rest of, of the New Testament, is ultimately the new creation. Uh, And how does it do that? It does that by dealing with this overhanging judicial liability uh, from the first covenant. Redemption from transgressions, uh, I think, is dealing with the the judicial penalty, the judicial liability that accrued uh, because of the way sin was reckoned under the old covenant. And Hebrews itself has some very strong statements about uh, how the law counted sin. So in chapter 2, verse 2, This is speaking about the the terms of the Mosaic Covenant given to Israel. Uh, Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Uh, Or then in chapter 10, in a very similar context, uh, contrasting the law of Moses uh, with the sacrifice of Christ. In chapter 10, verse 28, the author says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, So I think Hebrews is very concerned with this retributive principle in the law. Uh, There is a judicial liability that accrues to sin. There is a a punishment that must be carried out. Uh, And I think um, Jesus' death in chapter 9, verse 15, and really through verse 17, is both, uh, as it were, facing backwards to solve this problem of a kind of covenantal jeopardy uh, of the people being under uh, a, a sentence of condemnation from sins counted against the covenant, uh, and then it also looks forward. It's it's this hinge between the Old Covenant and New. It brings about the realization of the New Covenant uh, by dealing with the outstanding issues uh, of the Old. So so what's interesting about those three pa- passages in chapter 2 uh, and also in chapter 9 is that they all just simply focus on Jesus' death, and they present it as decisive. They present it as accomplishing salvation. I think that's crucial both Uh, for just understanding Hebrews' overall arguments, and then for asking, kind of finally getting around to your question proper, well, how does that relate to what Jesus does in heaven? Uh, And my basic answer is that Jesus' death is considered in Hebrews to be um, the material or the substance of his offering. It's considered to be that which he offers, uh, in other words, him coming into the presence of God, he, here is what he's achieved in his death, and he, he as it were, completes the exchange, make, makes this presentation to God uh, that in some ways closes the circuit, uh, make, makes his death effective, sets it in force as that which delivers from death. I think there's a couple of uh, supporting points for that in Hebrews. One is simply to note that blood is presented as material offered, both in the old covenant sacrifices and the new. Uh, blood is what the high priest brought in, Uh, blood is what was sprinkled in the Holy of Holies, and blood, for instance, uh, in chapter 9, verse 14, it is the blood of Christ uh, that purifies the conscience, or in verse 12, he entered by means of his own blood. Uh, Hebrews nowhere says in so many words, he offered his blood, Uh, but I think the parallels are clear enough Um, in in a variety of passages uh, throughout Hebrews, that blood is presented as the material offered. Now, I don't think that necessarily means uh, this is a physical act of sprinkling blood. Hebrews says Jesus offered himself. It says Jesus offered his body it says Jesus offered his blood, and I think all those are mutually interpreting. I think they refer simply to the the simple act of Jesus entering into God's presence as a self-presentation, bringing himself before God. Uh, But especially the language of blood gives us a kind of uh, theological depth to that act. It it gives a kind of lens of the significance of what's going on in Jesus offering himself. And then especially crucial passage here uh, for understanding the role of blood in Hebrews is chapter 9, verse 22. Uh, chapter 9, verse 22, the author's drawing up a, a kind of summary conclusion from his discussion of the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant and its cult. Chapter 9, verse 22, he says, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that phrase in English, shedding of blood, it's translating a Greek word that's pretty rare uh, that either the author of Hebrews coined the term uh, or it was a, a pretty rare word. You know, it might have been current in Greek-speaking Judaism at the time, and it just shows up in a few sources afterward. Uh, there's certainly debate about what this word means in Hebrews. Some people would say it's it's kind of sprinkling, the application of blood, uh, that it's, you know, what you do with the blood after the animal has been slaughtered. But actually, I do think that translation, shedding of blood, is, is accurate. Uh, the kind of parts of the word that go together to make it up uh, refer to pouring out of blood or shedding blood. Uh, and those specific terms used in a sacrificial content, context don't actually refer to those later stages, those later acts of sprinkling, tossing, that kind of thing. Uh, in, instead, it's, it's a frequent idiom for the, the taking of life. Uh, the, the, the violent taking of life, in this case, you know, cultically sanctioned uh, taking of life. So the author here draws a, a kind of generalization about the law. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. I think this is based on Leviticus 17.11, uh, where the Lord gives the Israelites a rationale for why blood is used in sacrifice and why they can't consume meat with blood in it. Uh, And and the Lord says to Israel, I have given the blood on the altar to make atonement for your lives because it is the blood that makes atonement by means of the life. And I think what's going on both in Leviticus 17.11 and in Hebrews 9.22 is that there's a life given for a life owed. Uh, Blood serves as a kind of currency, a medium of exchange, because it's so intimately associated with life. If you lose too much blood, you lose your life. Blood is integrally, uh, you know, it's necessary for life. So an animal's blood becomes a kind of currency of a life. Now, in the Old Covenant cult, that's a mitigated payment. It's a lesser payment uh, that someone can offer on on their own behalf. Uh, But I think that principle of an exchange and that blood obtains its value by being a life given, I think that kind of unlocks – how Hebrews connects Jesus' death as this uh, exclusive place taking, one giving himself in the place of others, connects Jesus's death uh, and the effectiveness Hebrews describes to Jesus's death. So then the role it plays in his offering. Uh, because if Hebrews saying that blood if Hebrews is saying that blood is necessary for forgiveness, that a life has to be given in order for there to be reconciliation with God, then I think that, that, that sort of connects the dots. Uh, to seeing Jesus's life as accomplishing that, his life given in death, uh, and then his blood—if that's what blood does according to Hebrews, if that's how blood obtains forgiveness, um, if that's what what the old covenant cult is is foreshadowing and pointing toward—then uh, I think it retains that significance in its function in Jesus's heavenly sacrifice. It's kind of completing the exchange. It's it's the it's the kind of bringing this to bear before God in heaven. So just to summarize all that, Jesus' death in its own terms uh, is soteriologically effective. It is atoning. It, it does defeat death. It does uh, obtain a redemption and forgiveness of sins. Uh, and then Jesus' offering and presentation of his blood is a way of, of kind of Hebrews further elaborating uh, how that redemption is, is accomplished and completed uh, by what he achieved in his death being brought to bear before God in heaven.
0: Now, Bobby, in your book, you give the spectrum of five views related to answering the questions your book addresses. Yours is the fifth view. The fourth view is similar. It considers Jesus' death as beginning a process that culminates with his self-offering in heaven. So given all that you've said about the importance and the efficacy of Jesus' death on the cross, how does your view distinguish itself from that fourth
1: view? That's an excellent question. Thank you for that uh, clarification. And you're right. I can see how you know, it would look like there's almost a, a porous boundary between those two views. How is what I'm saying different? I think the main difference would be that each proponent of that fourth view, and, and I'm saying mine is the, is the fifth, and so they are close to each other. Each proponent of that view would in some way or other see Jesus as acting as high priest in his death uh, so that somehow he's he's in that active role of uh offering himself he's already in some way ministering as high priest, and so that that uh, acting in that capacity precedes his resurrection and often people might point to uh, some verses in chapter ten, chapter ten verse five about Christ coming into the world, or some of the references in chapter ten, like verses ten to fourteen um and i think I think my main kind of pushback to that view would be. I think those people who would argue in those ways are rightly perceiving a whole lot of what's going on in Hebrews, but I think Hebrews itself actually gives us an even more consistent and sequential narrative uh, about how Jesus Jesus, um, comes to possess all the prerequisites for the office of high priest, uh, and that there is a clear distinction between, on the one hand, on the cross, him being offered. Hebrews even uses that language. It's the one sort of real outlier. In the offering language. Uh, on, in chapter 9, verse 28, he is offered in the, in the passive voice. Uh, and I think there he's being presented as the sacrificial victim uh, in language borrowed from Isaiah's suffering servant in, in Isaiah 53. So that's a passive role. In one sense, it's active. Of course, he willingly goes. Uh, this is an act of obedience. But in terms of how it fits with the sacrificial system, I think Jesus is there being pre- presented as the victim, uh, and it's only upon this kind of full coming into the qualifications for his distinctive high priesthood that he then takes this active role as priest of taking the, you know, taking that which has been given, uh, taking the life that's been given and offering it. Uh, so it really is a, a minor refinement, but it would be coordinating uh, what G- Hebrew says about Jesus becoming priest uh, kind of a li- what I would see as being more consistent and then having a picture of what's going on on the cross is he he is uh part of this sacrificial process he is being given up as victim he is giving his life uh, but that's not yet a a high priestly act um even the typical pattern uh, for instance in the in the sin offerings in the Le- the Levitical cult slaughter was a, a lay activity, it was the person who was bringing the animal, on, you know, on behalf of their sins or the community's sins, uh, who would do the slaughtering. It wasn't a uniquely priestly prerogative. So, it was almost a kind of, you know, introductory step. So, that, that, would, be, that would be my, you know, kind of minor quibble with the exponents of that view.
0: Stepping back now, give us a view of Hebrew sacrificial theology. How does it relate to other New Testament conceptions of atonement, is there a consistency with the rest of the New Testament? How unique is Hebrews on atonement?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there are a few uh, kind of places along the border, as it were, between Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament uh, that are worth engaging. I mean, one is, one is that you do get sacrificial language applied to Jesus' death uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, and that at times, you know, other New Testament authors seem to just all compress this into one. So, for instance, uh, Ephesians 5.2, um, you know, traditionally ascribed to Paul, and I take Paul to be the author. Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That, that little summary statement there, I don't really see, you know, room uh, there or reason to think that Paul had some more elaborate process or sequence in view so I think I think Paul there you know uses the language of sacrifice to talk about this self giving and he locates it on the cross now I think I think um, that I might say that's a bit more metaphorical use of sacrifice, whereas Hebrews has a bit more analogical use of sacrifice in the sense that it's a more detailed model. It's a more detailed mapping on of the sequence. And I would just see those as, as different and complementary, uh, legitimate appropriations uh, of that kind of language and imagery from, from the old Testament. I I wouldn't see a hard, I certainly see a difference, but I don't see any real tension between them. Um, You know, another, another challenging point is what do you make of, you know, Jesus saying on the cross in John's gospel, it is finished certainly when 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 a lot of people enter this debate uh it sounds like the kind of view i'm advocating would would jeopardize that um and i think uh, one response would be you know no, no one <laughs> no new testament author no you know apostolic preaching in the book of acts you know nobody stops the story with the crucifixion uh christianity wouldn't exist if uh, the story just stopped with, with the crucifixion. Think about what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. You know, the same Paul who resolved in this very letter to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says in, in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So he's saying not only is following Jesus a waste of time if he didn't get up from the dead, but but there's no effectual sacrifice. His death is not a saving remedy for sin if he he stayed dead. So even Paul, and I think he does this in Romans 4.25 as well, even Paul uh, has ways of ascribing saving significance, you know, sin dealing with significance to Jesus' resurrection. Uh, and so I think there, there, we have to kind of um as a matter of accurately describing these texts and then and then kind of putting them in dialogue with each other and thinking about them together, you know that we have to have ways of talking about okay, what is it that 's finished on the cross what what aspect what what element of the human plight is being uh, completely renovated there that 's being completely addressed there. While at the same time recognizing that that isn't isn't the end of the story, Uh, there is a coherence and a continuity to his being buried, raised, appearing to his disciples, ascending into heaven. Uh, So then as far as how how would Hebrews relate to maybe other specific uh, texts or uh, points of contact elsewhere in the New Testament – You know, one that was really impressed upon me, I think it kind of developed throughout my thesis research and became clearer and clearer over time, is just how close Hebrews is to the Last Supper narratives in the Gospels and Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. I think you have themes of covenant inauguration, Uh, you have vicarious life giving for the forgiveness of sins. And I think even when Jesus says, You know, this is my blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of many. I think uh, there's a good case to be made, that that is cultic and sacrificial language, that Jesus is self-consciously applying sacrificial language to what he's going to do. And then that, you know, that would line up very closely with what I'm seeing in Hebrews 9.22 of Jesus' life being given, it's a life-for-life exchange. Um, you know, there's lots of debates about does the Lord's Supper show up in Hebrews at all? I think I think there's at the very least these very close theological points of contact, and, and you know, most likely, on my view, Hebrews is ref- at least one of the the kind of theological sources Hebrews is taking for granted uh, is that Last Supper and Lord's Supper tradition. You know, I think another point of contact is um, this substitutionary life giving, which you especially see in, in chapter 2, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 15. That's very similar to a whole lot of passages in Paul Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, uh, 6 and 8, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. I think that's just a, a core Christian theological conviction that the author's taking for granted uh, and elaborating in some unique ways. You know, similarly, Uh, I think chapter 9, verses 15 to 17 is very similar to Galatians 3, 13 and 14, where Paul talks about uh, Christ becoming uh, a curse for us uh, so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I think in both of those passages, Jesus' death has the quality of kind of facing both ways in covenantal terms, addressing this overhanging issue from the Old Covenant, uh, securing the blessings of the New Covenant, being this kind of hinge of redemptive history. Uh, so those would all be, you know, points of contact, really close overlap. Um, you know, the the, the Venn diagrams are, are almost merged, but I think what's unique in Hebrews Uh, is that Hebrews is the only, you know, except for maybe little glimpses in Revelation, uh, the lamb that was slain and he approaches God's throne in heaven. I'd have to think just what kind of categories those passages are using. Uh, But it seems to me that Hebrews is just about unique in the New Testament, in this kind of detailed narrative elaboration of the sequence of sacrifice, uh, where it's using the Day of Atonement in particular as a fairly detailed model. Uh, Related to this would be Hebrews' strong focus on cleansing and purification. Uh, Those kind of terms show up elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, But Hebrews is sort of uniquely focused on them. Uh, Even the focus on sacred space. (laughs) Hebrews 9.23 has this, you know, striking and strange assertion about the heavenly things themselves needing to be purified. I think that's because Hebrews is kind of taking to its logical conclusion this idea that our sins, uh, they stick, they defile, they... They make dirty uh, what is what is around us, and even if we're going to dwell in God's own presence, which is a, a theme running from the beginning of the Bible to the end, uh, that has to be dealt with absolutely. And so that brings up another key cultic theme of, you know, dwelling face-to-face in God's presence. Uh, Hebrews' sort of ultimate horizon. You know, if, if Paul's language of justification is framed against the horizon of judgment— I think Hebrews' whole cultic theology is framed against the horizon of access to God, God's presence. How, how do you get in uh, into intimate face-to-face fellowship with God? How can that be a reality? And so I think Hebrews has a special focus on the ultimate realization of dwelling in God's presence, just like so much of Exodus uh, and Leviticus focus on that. That's, that's the goal of uh, the tabernacle cult uh, and, and Hebrews kind of lives within that and thinks within that. Uh, so, again, I see those as that's compatible. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, there's a strong accent on uh, obtaining access to God through Christ. Um, but that kind of complex of a sacrificial sequence, cleansing and purification, sacred space, access to God's presence, Hebrews is really rooted in the Levitical cult, uh, saturated in it in a way that I do think is unique and kind of crops up just in bits and pieces elsewhere in the New Testament
0: your book releases officially on February 7th, 2019. Is that right?
1: I, I think so. I think, yeah, at time of recording, that's tomorrow. So hopefully it'll be, you know, selling like wildfire by the time people hear this.
0: <laughs> well, Bobby, having completed your doctoral work and publication on Hebrews, obviously several years spent on this, will you be moving on to other New Testament books or topics, or do you have further work planned for Hebrews?
1: Uh, thanks for asking. You know, this whole project is about the work of Christ, and it it touches here and there on Hebrews' treatment of the person of Christ, uh, but that became a growing interest of mine while I was in Cambridge, while I was doing this research. I had an opportunity to give a lecture on Hebrews Christology and, and then a paper somewhere, and it just kind of snowballed into um, wanting to investigate in more depth uh the the person of Christ in Hebrews, and especially in kind of dialogue with and using resources from uh classical conciliar Christology. Uh, m- people often, you know, say that Hebrews, you know, pretty clearly has a kind of a single divine subject to nature's Christology. Uh, um, you know, he's he's a, a single person existing as both God and man. Uh that's that's not universally acknowledged but a whole lot of people see that in Hebrews and so I was I was drawn to think about um how does how does the person of Christ sort of undergird his work and how does perceiving Hebrews witness to the person of Christ help connect up its its soteriological narrative so that's actually uh, a book manuscript that I've basically written up and I'm just trying to find a suitable publisher for it uh so that's my that's my other thing on Hebrews Uh, I have an article on Paul's Christology that has kind of similar themes that I'm working to publish. Um, uh, Future work that I'm trying to get started on would more involve the intersection of exegesis and theology, especially around Trinity, uh, the the Trinity and Christology. So Hebrews, of course, plays a role in that, but that's deliberately trying to draw in more of Scripture. Uh, You know, moving more towards synthesis, thinking about yeah, the kind of intersection of exegesis and theology. Uh, I'm open to more work on Hebrews and maybe even some at some point uh, putting this research in a little bit broader context, maybe more of a biblical theology of atonement or, or, you know, something a bit more thematic and topical and maybe at a more accessible level. Uh, So I'm open to that, maybe long-term, but especially serving full-time as a pastor. I have to pick my writing projects pretty carefully.
0: Before we let you go, Bobby, tell us a little bit more about yourself.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Uh, originally, I wanted to be a professional musician. I, I studied jazz saxophone and was totally immersed in that for probably ten years of my life. And actually went went to um, the University of Southern California to study music. Uh, but during that time, redirected to really focus on ministry and theology. Uh, started studying Greek. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of kind of interim steps between that and and doing the PhD, and now where we've landed. Uh, I'm I'm serving in Washington D.C. at Capitol Hill Baptist Church as an associate pastor. I'll say more on that in a second. Uh, married to Kristen. She also grew up in in California, uh, same hometown. We have four children, ages nine down to six weeks. So we're we're thrilled about the new baby, and she's our best sleeper, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I'm serving. I've been serving. Uh, I finished up the PhD and moved back to the states and started serving here at at Capitol Hill as an associate pastor. Uh, that's a lot of preaching and teaching. It's helping to to lead uh, our other pastoral staff, uh, helping oversee a, a pastoral training program. We have a full time internship. That's kind of on the academic calendar, uh, six or seven interns in the fall and in the spring. That's full time. Uh, and trying to facilitate, you know, we're, we're a city center church. Uh, our building is full. Uh, we're trying to facilitate um, kind of planting and trying to revitalize other churches in the area. And that's something I try to give special attention to as well.
0: It's been great having you on New Books and Biblical Studies. All the best. Thanks so much. All right, friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. It's been a privilege to hear from Bobby Jameson about his book, Jesus, Death, and Heavenly Offering in Hebrews. Until next time, goodbye.